morning. <laughs> Welcome. Uh, let me pray before we get started. Uh, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fill these words, fill our hearts and our ears with only what you would want us to hear. We think about John the Baptist saying, he must increase, I must decrease. And I ask that for myself right now. I ask that you would uh, let these words fall as they should on the hearts that are sitting before me and also on mine. That there's anything of Jason would just melt away and that whatever you want us to take home today would stick and would change us and make us more like you. We thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, sick kids. I, uh, my son got his wisdom teeth out <laughs> this week. And one of the great joys of being a parent is videotaping your children in recovery rooms after they get surgery. It's just a blast. Sadly, I can't show you the video. I'm not sure you'll... So it's, I'm not sure it's totally apropos for church. But anyway, but it was funny. I'll tell you that. Anyway, but loving parents, we know, will do anything to see their child get well, right? When two of John Crowley's young children were diagnosed with a rare disease, uh, he, it was considered a death sentence on, on his children. And Crowley gave up his entire life um, to pursue a, a cure for his children. Uh, Crowley quit his job. He um, met with legions of scientists and uh, finally found one that he could work with and team up with. Uh, he borrowed $100,000 against his house and against his uh, retirement fund. And he started a biotech company, and he raised $27 million to, uh, in venture capital when the, comp and when the company uh, developed a sort of a promising enzyme. And when he needed a big company to sort of take over and get it into production and testing and all that, he sold his company to Genzyme Corp for $137.5 million. That's quite a lot of money. And the story ends with Crowley getting the needed medication for his children, praise God, and his new mission is to find uh, medication that works even better and as well as to help other families find medications that treat rare diseases for their children. Now, we've seen the video uh, depiction of this passage. Um, turn with me now to John chapter 4 in your pew Bibles there, page 726, John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54, page 726 of your pew Bibles. And let's read it together because it's good to see it and then read it, right? It says, once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine, and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. Um, everybody, somebody always texts me and says, it's Capernaum, or, you know, whatever. So it's, it's pronounced various ways. When the man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal, official said, Sir, the, the royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with news that this boy, his boy was living. And when he inquired as the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. Important little tidbit of information there. 
uh, verse 54, this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Now, the purpose of John's gospel can be found in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, and I'll read that for you. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, these stories, these biblical stories, are time-tested, trustworthy accounts with great evidence in support of them. The focus of this story, as with others in John, is on believing but the dimension of believing without the immediacy of seeing, right? Realize, I, I would like us to realize that belief may not come at first from your own direct encounter. Sounds kind of strange for me to say. But it may come rather through family tradition. Your parents are Christians, raised you as a Christian. Or those who have influence over you, since it says he and his whole household believed, right? But this is not something that the Western worldview accepts too easily, does it, right? We're all rational individuals demanding constant empirical truth of everything, even though that's not possible. Although those, those same people that demand that may go to the Zodiac or fortune teller for guidance, they may believe things, other stories in this world, which are actually spiritual and unprovable in nature. The truth is that we simply believe what we choose to believe, don't we? We simply believe what we choose to believe. It's almost expected right now that a child will reject their parents' faith. And there are certain people we know with influence over our children in this culture that are dead set on facilitating that process in a young person's life. We know that. And we have parents that wring their hands and get frustrated since their wisdom and their life experience is outright rejected by those that they love the most. They fight the constant onslaught of falsehood for themselves, but also for their children and their grandchildren alike. Sadly, they may get louder and more adamant about issues since their voices have been robbed of authority as kids are led astray by outside voices which don't actually love or care for them, right? Faith-filled parents, it's, I think this is a very unpopular thing to say these days. I don't know why, but faith-filled parents should be trusted and should be listened to above all other voices with evidence of positive change in their lives as a result of Jesus. We should trust our parents when they walk with the Lord. In John's mind, and also in Jesus' mind, you don't have to see miracles or wonders to have faith, actually. You can simply believe on conviction of scriptural truth or on the testimony of someone who loves us and exhibits the long-standing transformation of Christ in their lives. We can simply choose to believe these stories. Lots and lots of people of history have, and it's done nothing but good for them. But we have been too focused on experiential ministry rather than, than on spiritual conviction, scriptural conviction, and the life change which comes as a result of that. Our train is not driven by feeling. Rather, fact then faith, 
and then feeling bringing up the rear as the caboose, right? We often look at the short term when we should be looking at the long term, right? Long-term lives built on biblical values and principles should speak loudly to our hearts. We can trust those stories and convictions of others. Doubt, scrutiny, suspicion, and skepticism are simply not positive uh, values or helpful character traits, although we think they have become that. They're not helpful in the face of long-standing, time-tested stories and the witnesses of those who love us and have exhibited the benefits of walking with Jesus for years. Right? The failing stories of leaders and parents over the years and tragic failing stories, I just heard one this week, are, but they are, they are minuscule in number to the amount of people throughout history who have believed and walked with Jesus really well and seen their lives change, and they can be trusted. But trust is a limited commodity these days. It really is. We trust very little. Maybe you have a parent in their 60s or 70s or 80s, and they seem angry and they seem frustrated as their values are constantly being assaulted and dismantled before them. We listen to other voices out there, and we label them as just outdated conservatives as they hold on to what we view as dying traditional values. And that is not loving of them or respectful of their history at all. But this is not about politics or sociology. This is about his story, God's truth, and loving pursuit of his people throughout history. That's what this is all about. Can we believe this or not? Can we believe this or not? Older Christians and faith-filled parents only want for us what they already know to be true without us having to go through all the same mistakes that they made, right? And that is that it's best to walk with Jesus and to make Matthew 6.33 our life's verse. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. In other words, with Jesus central to life, things fall into place much easier, don't they? We're able to navigate the emotion that life dredges up more easily, and we are able to walk through them more effectively. Relationships will be stronger and healthier. Stability and success, as defined by the scriptures, will come to us. In many a parent's, parents' experience who have walked with Jesus, doubt as to the story of, of God has been erased over the years. Has been erased as to the veracity of the biblical message. It's as true to them as the sun rises each day. The most practical and best way to live in relationship with others. The changed life over decades, the changed life over decades is a greater miracle than even an on-the-spot healing. The Bible and life are his story, history, right? The The record of his loving pursuit of his people filled with practical guidance and wisdom along the way. And knowing that, 
we should connect with our creator daily, setting every thought and decision before him, 2 Corinthians 10.5, right? Obeying and pursuing him well with the knowledge that we are covered by his blood. We are absolutely covered by his blood. And nothing can take that relationship away from us or that reality away from us, not even ourselves. Not even our own faultiness. Older Christians and parents simply say, with all the wisdom of their, their years collectively, do not bow to culture. Bow your knee to Jesus. Right? Don't bow to culture. Bow to Christ always. And you will do well. It won't always be easy, but you will do well. In other words, as Jesus said to Paul in Acts 26, 14, I love this verse, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Do you know what a goad is? A goad was this long, sharp stick, right? And, and it was used to get an ox going the way that you would want it to go when, when you're you know, using him to plow a field or whatever. You jab him in the hind legs and uh, somebody's calling Sammy's calling me, <laughs> one of my foster sons, sorry. Um, with the hind legs of this ox with, with the goat until he cooperated. He went the way that you would want him to go, right? And essentially what, what this is saying is that Saul, or Paul as he's later known, was the ox already under the direction of Jesus as the farmer. That Paul was kicking against Jesus' direction. And it's certainly easier not to do that but just to simply trust, simply believe, and simply submit to your creator. Paul was a well-educated man. We know that. He was of the Jewish faith and, 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 and Jewish background, but his skepticism about Christ was holding him back from what he was truly made to be and do. And many of us do the same, don't we? We kick against the goads. Unwilling to be led in the pride of our faulty intellects. Leading to unreasonable doubt when Christ and others have shown us the way already. By the way, it's okay to have doubt. But when we feed it and feed it and feed it until it becomes overwhelming, that's the problem. The healing of the official son reveals this man, a non-Jew, could believe without being shown. Right? He simply turns around and returns home, trusting Jesus' word. He knew Jesus had heard him. It also reveals that God is generous with his grace, doesn't it? He pours it out on Gentile and Jew alike. He wasn't playing any favorites. He answered need in the moment. So do you believe when you pray that God has heard you? Or do you need signs and wonders to believe? Do you need proof? Once again, Jesus in, in Galilee, after lamenting the lack of faith among his own people, when in John chapter 4, verse 44, he noted a prophet has no uh, honor in his own hometown, his own home country. In other words, familiarity breeds contempt among us, doesn't it? When there's familiarity, we tend to choose not to believe somebody. By the way, you may not like my beard. You may not like my tattoos. You may not like my dreadlocks. Okay. But am I saying what I'm saying is true? You can look at somebody and actually 
not go their direction just because of little things like that. We all know that. They may have said, well, I saw him grow up. How could he be the Messiah, right? Or for us, I've been to church, didn't do a thing for me. Went there for like three weeks, <laughs> right? Or we might say, my parents drive me crazy. Mom, that's not true, by the way. My parents drive me crazy. Why would I adopt their beliefs? Despite all the signs of the reality of it. Maybe it's our heart. Maybe it's our unbelief which stands in the way of us knowing the creator of the universe. With other older Christians around us, we think of all the things that we've seen from them which doesn't seem to fit what they say that they believe, right? And we tend to judge God's word on a person's mistakes. We forget that everybody is in process, aren't they? That the Christian is the farthest from being a hypocrite given that we admit that we battle with our own flesh, we battle with our own sinful nature, that we make mistakes constantly, right? There may be plenty to point to in a person's life which testifies about Jesus, but we focus in on the few things which aren't of him, and we draw faulty conclusions of Christ as a result of those things. We can't judge God, we can't judge the biblical narrative on the disobedience of his people. We can't. That's unfair to God, isn't it? It's much better to be mature, to look at the good that we do see, and then go back to the scriptures ourselves, leaving our skepticism at the door to allow Jesus to speak. Do as I say and not as I do is not necessarily hypocrisy or bad advice when somebody is honest about their own struggles. Sometimes it's just a humble statement acknowledging our own limitations. I don't know if you've seen it. There's a little video meme out there of a farmer, and he's got a goat caught in this culvert filled with water, and he's down there in the mud, and he's picking this goat up, and he puts it back on the side, and the goat does this, boom, and falls right back into the culvert. And, he sa and it says over the top, uh, me, when Jesus saves me from my bad decisions. That's what we are, <laughs> Right? So here they are, suddenly we find Jesus confronted with someone who's traveled a, a great distance because of his faith in Jesus. An official in, uh, in Capernaum learns of Jesus and he, and he goes to him and he asks Jesus to heal his son, right? And there are two levels of distance between this man and Jesus. The first is geographical, right? Jesus is in Cana, he is, uh, uh, and, and the official is in... Um, Capernaum, and the distance between Capernaum and Cana is about a day's walk, a full day's travel on foot, and yet this man has made the journey. He's made that journey to request Jesus' presence to heal his son. He wants Jesus to come, and that's an important point later. The second point of distance is social, right? The, the official was most likely of the arist aristocratic class, right? As a member of Herod uh, Antipas's uh, court, he was highly influenced by Greco-Roman culture. Uh, so in every way, he, has, he is the exact opposite of Jesus, this humble little Jew, right, walking around in his sandals. I backpack for hundreds of miles at a time, and I hats off to you, Jesus, for walking all that way in sandals, right? I have nice boots. <laughs> Nevertheless, this official 
seeks Jesus out, right, even though he's so different than him, and, and lets Jesus know that his son is ill. And this is a journey of faith for him, isn't it? To leave your son who is at the point of death and go a whole day's journey away from him in the hope to find the only person that might be able to heal him. Like John Crowley, going far to help his children, this guy went a long way. And, as Je- and, and, and Jesus responds in a somewhat sort of perplexing way in verse 48. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. Jesus is most likely at that point with that statement addressing the people who fit into the category of what he was talking about in verse 44. Those who just choose not to believe due to their familiarity. Whatever the case, that official makes the the journey, hears what Jesus says, right? And, and, And yet he remains steadfast in his faith. And that is a demonstration of the the official's perseverance when he responds. Sir, sir, come down before my child dies, to which Jesus replies, go, your son will live. Hearing that was all he needed, right? He turned around, and he made the one-day journey back home, and at that point, that's his second journey of faith. Twice he asked for Jesus to come to his son to heal him. The second time, Jesus merely says, go, your child's going to live, right? to turn around and leave without visible proof of healing and yet believe is a tremendous act of faith. He wanted Jesus to come back with him and do it on the spot. Consider your prayer life in the light of of this official's actions. How often do we pray, and when we're done, the silence remains and the problems are still there? Do we believe that God has heard us? that he's real, that he's actually active? Or do we want signs and wonders to prove things and to believe? The actions of this official, an an outsider by the standards of Jesus' disciples, right, should challenge us to take some stock of our faith and how our actions line up with what we claim we believe. On his way home, The official encounters his servants who let him know that his son has recovered and he discovers the time uh, the son turned the corner was the same time that Jesus said he would be healed, right? And this leads to even more people believing. And we read it, it's another sign of Jesus. And as we saw last week, right, these are signs of God working through Jesus in the world for our salvation. And so, too, here we see that when God works through Jesus, it is good news, right? Literally, it is good news. This story, like the one last week, is a picture of the gospel. What did this man do to deserve the favor of Jesus? He was the exact opposite of him. What did he do to deserve this? He believed. That's it. That's all he did. He believed. He didn't do any great works. You know, he didn't go out and feed the hungry and all that kind of stuff. He just simply believed, and Jesus responded with grace upon him and his family. The sign once again shows us that God is gracious and generous with his grace. And we remember in John 20, 29, Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you have believed Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. That's us, 2,000 years later. 
in last week's story and this one, there's a statement of need. There's a longing from, for help from Jesus, right? It's followed by the sort of a censure from Jesus and then the providing of a miraculous answer. And Jesus was surrounded by unbelief. Those demanding a sign or a wonder, but those things are less important as to whether or not Jesus was who he claimed to be. That's the real question. Does the scripture reveal him? Did did he fulfill the scriptures? Did, Did God come in the flesh to reveal himself in Jesus? Is the whole story, this Bible, true and can I believe it or not? There are parallels in the story of the wedding and this man, right? The servants filled and drew that water out or the wine for the guests, and the official heard this word and he responded appropriately. The man obeyed the word of Jesus without seeing the sign, as did those servants when they were pouring out what they thought was just water. In the ancient world, miracles and acts of power were linked to the presence of the miracle worker. But in this story today, the, story, the, the, the healer refuses to be present. He just says the word. The story is an important illustration of the purpose for which John wrote the gospel. Believing the word is linked with not immediately seeing the signs. We know in these two stories, the disciples believed at the wedding, right? Jesus' own mother was there as well. She seemed to believe, but largely at this point in time, Gentile faith seemed to surpass the faith of Israel, right? In Matthew 8, chapter 8, verses 10 through 12, he, he marveled at the faith of this Gentile Roman centurion. It says, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to all those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west, will take their places at the feast of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the, in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Kind of scary, that last part. This tells us that faith, without having a call of great wonders and seeing wonderful things, but just raw belief or trust pleases God. And also that there's a consequence to our skepticism and our constant disbelief, which really is born out of our pride, isn't it? Maybe all those old Christians seemingly frustrated because they, you know, we've all thrown out all they know, and they're frustrated because they love you. (laughs) They actually love you. And they don't want to see you suffer the consequences of constant skepticism and unbelief while they can testify so clearly that this Jesus stuff is really true. I am 56 years old as of a week, two weeks ago. A week ago, I forget. I have four biological children. I have many more foster children. I have a big gray beard as of the last few months. I have a lot of life experience. I've been a missionary for eight and a half years in a Muslim country. I've pastored one of the largest churches in in this region, uh, and I planted this one 15 years ago after doing that. And I've led and I've had opportunity to see how the gospel works when it is accepted by people and it's applied to life and and how lives also fall apart when it is rejected. I've scoured the scriptures over my life. 
along with all these other religious and philosophical writings. I've read extensively on the historicity of the gospel accounts. I see nothing but proof of their historicity and confirmation of their veracity. My education has come through choosing to believe and living it out when my flesh wanted to doubt so badly. I have adopted the attitude that if I come across something in the Bible that I don't agree with, then I'm at fault and I have to adjust, not the scriptures. Gospel truth is tested in me. You may think I'm sounding arrogant. I'm, I'm not. It's tested in me. I believe it. And although I can't answer every question about it, right? I'm your pastor. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder <laughs> how I got to be here. I am imperfect in many ways. But hopefully I'm transparent about those things. And I love you. I do. I love you deeply. So trust me when I say this story of God the biblical accounts, all that you read there, and all that they teach are real and true and trustworthy. It's the one thing you can be confident in in this world. Jesus loves you. He loves you. He came to show that. He came to bring reconciliation and redemption and abundant life to all of us. Like this man, take Jesus at his word and stop kicking against the goads. Not that I'm assuming you are. If you can testify to the truth and the veracity of the scriptural message and you are convinced of the same things that I am, stand up right now. Just stand up. Do you believe in Jesus with all of your heart and mind and soul? Now, let me ask you, do any of you standing have people in your life that you long to know this do you? If you do, raise your hand. You do. Well, here's my advice. Be lovingly bold and patient with them and pray for them and tell them the story again and again and again. And I want you to think on those people right now. Think about them. And I want us to take a few minutes to silently pray for each of those people to yourselves. After that, I'll end, end with a prayer myself, and we can wrap up by reciting the Apostles' Creed together and celebrating the real, real story of Christ through the table, all right? Let's pray silently for a few minutes. Pray for whoever God brings to your heart.